Welcome. This is Field Points of View with Cameron Dawson and Johnny Gibson, a podcast about macro, markets, and investing, brought to you by Fieldpoint Private. Cameron Dawson and Johnny Gibson work for Fieldpoint Private and are investment advisors registered with Fieldpoint Private Securities. All opinions expressed by Cameron or Johnny or any podcast guest are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Fieldpoint Private. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you are encouraged to speak with an investment professional before making any investment decisions. It is possible that clients of Fieldpoint Private will have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Fieldpoint Private Securities is an SEC-registered broker-dealer and registered investment advisor and is a member of FINRA. Hello, and welcome to Field Points of View. I'm Cameron Dawson, Chief Market Strategist at Fieldpoint Private, and I'm joined by Johnny Gibson, Chief Investment Officer at Fieldpoint Private. In today's episode, we are going to be presenting a conversation we had earlier this week with Professor Jeremy Siegel, thanks to our partnership with Wisdom Tree Investments. If you would like to see the charts that Professor Siegel references in this discussion, you can watch the video replay at fieldpointprivate.com. Not to give away too many spoilers about Professor Siegel's presentation, but Johnny, you and I had a few thoughts about the topics that the professor brought up. It was a really interesting conversation that we had with Professor Siegel because it brought up a very different view on the persistence of inflation beyond just the next couple of months where we have really easy comparisons from 2020, what a lot of people call base effects. Um, and it's his view that you will see sustained inflation of 4 to 5% over the next few years, which is clearly well above the Fed's target and clearly well above the market's expectations as well, given you know where, where market-based inflation expectations are. So this is a, a pretty big uh, big call. And he's not expecting that to be a big moment uh, for equity markets, a big shock to equity markets um, in the very near term. But I think that there's a little bit of a hint that there could be other you know, trouble brewing on the horizon once we look out a couple of years. It's really interesting as far as how that aligns with the conversation that we've been having. Is it a sea change as far as changing the impact and trajectory of interest rates and inflation is, is it a change in the 40 year bull market for bonds or not? Are we, are we at finally out of that quagmire of false alarms for higher inflation that have materialized for the past 12 to 13 years without actually being realized? And maybe this is the time that it does happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, a clear shift in, in the regime and policy, one that we've written about extensively over the past couple of months, which is this idea that um, not only have you changed monetary policy with the fact that the, uh, the Fed is now doing average inflation targeting, uh, instead of reacting kind of anticipatory, you know, tightening policy, you know, once inflation nears that 2% goal, but that the Fed will be very willing to tolerate inflation well above their 2% target for an extended period of time and not 
remove what is really crisis level policy accommodation. But we're also seeing a major shift in fiscal policy as well. You know, in, in massive deficit spending, direct checks to people and uh, to individuals. So I think that that Dr. Siegel's point that you know the the expectation of how money supply growth will impact inflation in the in over the last cycle, which was that there was no impact on inflation, um, is very different now that all of the money supply that's being created is no longer just being you know, held up in the banking system, but it's actually being distributed to individuals going into to the real economy. That has so many implications for, for earnings, for uh, the performance of equities, for the performance of bonds, commodities. So yeah, it's, um, it is pretty uh, d- dynamic uh, change. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the other things that we've been talking a lot about, which is that the first step is realizing that the regime is different. And then we ask the question of how will that impact asset price behavior going forward? You know, we have to acknowledge that we are in a different world than we were in coming out of the great financial crisis because the policy response was extraordinarily different. And, you know, we've discussed how, you know, that, you know, people got the inflation dynamics so wrong so many times over, over the last decade and, and, and further that there were, you know, all these inflation worrying about inflation coming out of the great financial crisis because of the the boost in in, in money supply growth. Um, and you know, there was the open letter to the Fed uh, from the Wall Street executives saying, we're going to have hyperinflation if you keep doing this darn quantitative easing thing. And it ended up not materializing. And that's created a scenario where, you know, now the expectation that inflation is is not a, a, a concern of our time is very well entrenched. And so, the question is, you know, are people wrong in thinking that 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 we'll never see inflation again? That that perfectly aligns when you think about the psychology and behavioral finance with the mm-hmm. snake bot bit phenomenon, where if you're wrong with an idea more than once, you're very reluctant to return to that idea. And so it would be very natural to have some level of skepticism that this time is different in terms mm-hmm. of the inflation regime. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, one of the things that's causing a lot of people to to say all of the inflation that we're seeing right now is going to be purely transitory, that once we get past the easy comparisons and some of these supply chain issues, that you're going to fall back to that that new long-term trend line to being you know, below 2%, below the Fed's target, that you're not going to see something that is you know sustainably well above the Fed's target. It speaks to the fact that it probably is too early to tell exactly how this is all going to play out since right now we are truly in the throes of those easy comps. But once we start getting into the summer and we start lapping or getting past those those easy comparisons, once some of these supply chain constraints start to work themselves out, maybe those happen by summer, maybe it takes longer because we'll be reopening into a tight supply chain. But eventually these things kind of work out. The question will be, do we get wage inflation? 
And do we get the type of inflation that sticks? And there are signs, you know, based on you know, the job openings report that we got, um, you know, earlier this week, which was you know the the, the first full week of April, um, you know, that that this this job openings report points to the fact that job openings are now higher than they were prior to the pandemic, and there's reports of jobs being hard to fill from businesses, and so there are indicators and signs that we're seeing the early signs of of wage inflation, which is something that Dr. Siegel talks about as well as being something that could materialize as we as we look out a couple of years. So without further ado, we present a conversation with Professor Jeremy Siegel. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Uh, I want to thank Wisdom Tree for uh, joining us in this call today. Uh, we Appreciate the partnership there. But before we get started, I have a real quick uh, disclosure. Professor Siegel is here with us today in his capacity as a market strategist and an educator. His opinions are his own and may be different from those of Phil Point Private Securities. Nothing he says, for, for that matter, anything that Cameron or I say, uh, should be taken as a recommendation to pursue any specific investment strategy or as a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any individual security. So with that, uh, allow me to introduce, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, uh, Professor Siegel. So uh, Jeremy J. Siegel is Wisdom Tree's Senior Investment Strategy Advisor. He's the Russell E. Palmer Professor of Finance at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Siegel has written and lectured extensively about the economy and financial markets and is a regular contributor to the financial news media. In 1994, he received the highest teaching rating in a ranking of business school professors conducted by Business Week magazine. His book, Stocks for the Long Run, was named by the Washington Post as one of the top 10 best investment books of all time. His latest book is The Future for Investors. It is also a bestseller. Um, and with that, Dr. Siegel, thank you for joining us today. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Johnny, very much, uh, and, and Cameron. Um, I'm very happy to be with you this morning. And uh, I want to give you my view of the world and where it's going. And, and then take your questions uh, as a result. So um, here's my presentation. Um, of course, all these disclaimers here, our lawyers put these in for us. Uh, this, this graph here is a very important graph the long run returns on the major average. You know, I probably have a hundred different um, graphs and tables in my book. Uh, this is the most important one. Uh, how do, do the major asset classes perform over time? And when I published the first edition for Stocks for Long Run, and that was all the way back in 1994. By the way, I'm now doing the sixth edition that will be out next year. Um, uh, uh, this has been the graph that told me the story. Stock returns after inflation, bond returns after inflation, bill returns after inflation. Let me just show you the real returns, compound annual real returns on these asset classes. Stocks, 6.8% per year. 
after inflation, that's dividends, capital gains after inflation. Bonds 3.6. By the way, both of those are going to be lower in the future, and I will talk about that. Bonds much lower. Bills 2.6. Bills are like CDs, bank accounts. Gold has just managed to stay above inflation by about 0.7% per year. And we've had the dollar depreciating over time. But of course, the major massive stocks for the long run is even though stocks are the most volatile asset class in the short run. Golly, don't we know that? They are the most stable asset class in the long run. Look at that line there. That's a least squares regression line. 6.8% per year over 220 years. All right. How does that relate to today? All right. Let, let me just show you. Last June. I guess that's around three months after the panic of the pandemic hit. I looked at the money supply. Oh, first of all, I should go back and talk about why did I look at the money supply? Well, first of all, my PhD is not in finance, it's in economics, and it's with a specialty in monetary theory and policy, which I got at MIT in 1971. And then my first teaching position was at the University of Chicago, where I was honored to be a colleague of Professor Milton Friedman, winner of Nobel Prize for his research on monetary history. And I remember him telling me, saying, Jeremy, what the Fed does is extremely important. But if the Fed pushes money and the government into people's bank accounts, that's even more powerful. Now, what is the M1 money supply? It is people's bank accounts. It's payroll accounts. It's, it's checking accounts. It's demand deposits. State and local government accounts. And in June, I saw that it suddenly jumped 40%. I had never seen that. I had been following it for a half a century. By the way, just in comparison, it is up more in three months than over the entire financial crisis that followed the Lehman bankruptcy in 2008, 2009. We were already supplying enormous stimulus. Now, at that point, I sat down and I said, okay, I know what's gonna happen. We're going to have one of the biggest, well, biggest booms ever in first the asset markets where people can operate. And then in the real economy, once vaccines come and the economy opens up, we will see something we have never seen before. I said that last summer. And by the way, everything I've seen since convinces me that that was the right prediction. Now, let me give you the next slide because this is really interesting. M, actually, Professor Friedman 
believed that M2, which is a broader measure of the money supply, that actually includes uh, savings accounts and all, all sorts of liquid assets, bank accounts, was actually more important. And he actually developed a the best series. This was the book called The Monetary History of the United States, which actually was cited by the Nobel Prize Committee when he won in 1976. The money supply increase in 2020, M2, you see the arrow there, that's the black line, was the highest in history, in the 150 year history, higher than anything we saw in World War I, higher than anything we saw in World War II. Now the red line is inflation. Inflation usually follows by 12 to 24 months, the money supply. And right now, you can see that we have a record decline in, excuse me, a record gap between the money supply and inflation. Inflation has been quiet because people are just beginning to spend. We'll talk about that. I think inflation is gonna break out in the next three months. And I do it on the basis of this dramatic increase in the money supply. By the way, what about the fiscal response? How much government spending we have? Well, if we include Biden's infrastructure bill, now he probably is not gonna get all of it, but if we include it, that's the top part of that right-hand bar, $7.25 trillion over 10 years. That is more than nine times the fiscal stimulus we had during the financial crisis, which by the way, induced the worst economic contraction and the worst bear market since the Great Depression of the 30s. So both on the fiscal front and on the monetary front, we have unprecedented stimulus. What does that mean? All right. My belief that this is really going to end up potently into the economy strong spending and higher inflation. Now, by the way, I am not talking about inflation, you know, hyperinflation. I am not even talking about double digit inflation, such as we had in the 1970s. But I'm talking about inflation of four, five, six percent a year that might continue for two, three, four years, eventually raising prices by 20, maybe 25 percent above current levels. Now, a lot of people say to me, Dr. Siegel, we, you know, the Fed created a lot of money in the financial crisis, didn't they do quantitative easing? Isn't that when it was born, et cetera? Yes. That didn't produce inflation, didn't, did it? No. What is the difference? This is important. 
back then, all the liquidity created by the Fed went into excess reserves of the banking institutions. They weren't lent out, or just a little was. The banks, by the way, before financial crisis, held zero excess reserves because no interest was paid on reserves and, and bank managers were told, rightly so, you hold your reserves at zero, just follow requirements. Then came the crisis. Then they wanted excess reserves and so did the Fed. And then the Fed started paying interest on reserves. So all of a sudden, they, so all the quantitative easing went excess reserves, a little bit was lent out. Today, today, all that money is lent out. The Fed is, what's happening? The government just creating money, writing checks. Where's that money coming from? The Fed. It's buying all the government bonds that are being issued crediting the government's account, and then the government is immediately taking that money and crediting your account, the PPE account, payroll protection program accounts, the stimulus packages, the unemployment insurance, the grants to state and local governments, on and on and on and on. Again, we have never seen anything like this. All right. Again. I think four to five percent inflation, way above Fed target. But as you're going to learn, they're not going to take away the punch bowl <laughs> right away. How do stocks do in this environment? I envision. Well, they like moderate inflation. They have pricing power. They will. Demand will be high, and those companies that have been fortunate enough to take out long-term government, long-term debt at 2%, 2.5% are going to be very happy about that. Paying back debt at low interest rates and depreciated values. I actually want levered firms now. You know, back at the pandemic, oh, buy clean balance sheets, et cetera, and so on. Yeah, that, that was good then but not now. I want firms that have locked in low rates and they're gonna be smiling all the way to the bank over the next two to three years. All right. What about the stock market? Is it crazy? What's the valuation? And what does that mean for future returns? Well, here's a 75-year graph, almost, of the price-earnings ratio on the S&P 500. Oops, get back there. There is also a trend line that is established. And you will note that the trend line actually intersects at 20 now kind of the new normal. Long term, it's a little lower, but about 20. All right. What does that mean? Um, what does that mean? Well, I look at the price earnings ratio and I flip it around. Take the reciprocal of it. Instead of price over earnings, 
I look at earnings over price. And guess what? That turns out to be an excellent predictor of long-term real returns. Now, let me give you some data to confirm that. Over the past 150 years that we have price earnings ratios, the average has been 15. One over 15, 6.7. Now, if you remember my first graph, I said that the long-term real return on stocks is 6.8. Well, we're one-tenth different. Yeah, it, it works. It works. It's, you know, if I had more time, I would derive it for you mathematically and show you that it works. And uh, it both is theoretically uh, sound and empirically valid. So where do we stand today? All right. S&P, just over 4,000. Stocks are selling around 22 times next 12 months S&P operating earnings estimate, which is $179 a share. I think we're going to get higher than that, honestly. I think we're closer to 185, 190, but we'll take a look. I think the boom is going to be much greater. And inflation is going to be greater. And that's going to go to bottom line because firm has bought inventory at low prices. Yeah, they'll have higher prices on certain things they're buying. Yet you know what? They'll pass all that along. And guess what? Customers will happily pay because they won't be able to get it cheaper anywhere else. So stocks are selling around 22 times earnings. One over 22 is four and a half percent. So when people ask me, Dr. Siegel, three to five years hence, what do you think the real return on stocks are gonna be? I see four and a half percent over inflation. That's dividends plus capital gains after inflation taken into account. Yes, that's about two points lower than the historical average. Although I think this year is a boom. I've always predicted this year could be 20% or more. But then after that, it calms down. What about bonds? Oh, you know, I told you the historical on bonds was three to three and a half percent. What is it today? Well, if you go into TIPS, the Treasury Inflation Protected Bonds, the 10 year is about minus one, a little bit higher now. If you go in regular bonds, it's 1.7% before inflation. If you believe inflation is going to be 3, 4, 5%, you're negative 1, 2, 3. Do you know that gap between the return on stocks and bonds? Whoa, that, that, that is called the equity risk premium. And you know what? Right now, it's more than 5% more than twice its historical average. So yes, stocks are going to return a little less after inflation, after this boom year, but bonds are going to turn much less after inflation. What about value and growth? Well, it's been hard being a value shop as we at Wisdom Tree have been over the last five years. We've had three extremes in the last half century on which valuation of growth stocks has gone way above that of value stocks. 
The first extreme happened during the nifty 50 mania, 1975. It takes us older guys a little bit of to remember that. Firms only bought growth stocks, pension funds. I'm only going into the, I don't care what their price is. You know, we're going to go into just the, no, they weren't all computer stocks back then. Back then, you know, they went into Avon products. They went into Procter & Gamble. They went into a whole bunch of them. They also went into Polaroid and Eastern Kodak. And, well, you didn't want to go into those. IBM was one of them, one of the fewer computer stocks at that time. Then, of course, the second big wave was the dot-com bubble 25 years later. And the third one is now, but reversed in the last six months with the reopening. I'm going to talk more about value and growth and where you should be in the first future. But I, want, I wanted to show you this graph over here. What about our government debt? These huge deficits. Well, we hit the peak. You see that big increase? By the way, you want a, you want a good uh, website? It's the Congressional Budget Office website, CBO. It's CBO.gov. I got this right off of them. They have a lot of great data in there. This is the ratio of government debt held by the public to the GDP over the last 150 years. Well, projecting over the last 120 with the projection of what's going to happen. You see what's going to happen? You see where we are now? We reached the World War II 100% limit. Now, there's nothing magical about 100% because this is debt versus GDP. It's just like a corporation could have its debt government bonds greater than its profits or income. One is what's called a stock variable. The other is called a flow variable. But look at how rapidly we've gone up. We were not supposed to hit this level of 100% for another five to six years. And then, of course, it keeps on going up and up and up because of unfunded liabilities for the entitlement programs. I'm not going to get into that issue. But I'm going to say something that I've been saying for 10 years or answering for 10 years. I'm asked, Professor Siegel, when is our government ever gonna do anything about government debt? And here's my answer. They will do nothing until interest rates rise enough, until people say, ouch. Yeah, that's the only time in the past we've done anything. And it will be the only time in the future. And we're not there yet. And we're miles away from there yet. Will we get there? Probably at some point, two, three years down the road. In the meantime, guys, enjoy the ride. Hey, before the crisis, we at Wisdom Tree called for the death of the 60-40 bond portfolio. It just is not going to do the trick. Returns are way too low on bonds. And as a result, 
we've advocated a higher ratio. I'm going to back up. The first, I want to talk about the goals of a retirement portfolio. One is you want to maintain your lifestyle. You want to draw. I need 100,000 a year, 200, whatever it is. Right? Two, you don't want to run out of money and force the cut back. In other words, you want that money there. Three, if you can leave a legacy, fine. Some people do want it, some people don't. And of course, you want to minimize your taxes. Let me show you something that we have done that I think is very interesting. We basically have analyzed the probability of running out of money with a 60-40 portfolio and a 75-25 portfolio. And how have we done this? Under two different draws. One is you withdraw 4% per year out of your portfolio. For every million, that's 40,000. The other is a 5% draw. Now, the 5% draw, the probability of running money money are represented by those blue bars, light blue bars. They're going to be higher, right? I mean, the more you draw out, the more probability you're not going to have enough. The, the red bars represent four. Notice that the probability of running out of money actually is lower at a 75-25 portfolio than it is at a 60-40. Wow. Now you can say, how did we determine that? We took actual historical data and we ran thousands of simulations with crashes and bear markets and bull markets and all the data. And we said, what percent of time are you gonna run out of money? Lower. Now, most people think, yeah, I, you know, if, if I have more stocks, I'll leave a bigger legacy, but I'll run out of money because stocks are more volatile in the short run. This, this was counterintuitive. The reason is, is the gap between income and stocks and bonds is now so large that believe it or not, you actually run out of money less with more stocks than less stocks. And by the way, this was under assumptions of a 0% real bond return. You can't get that today. This was done just before the pandemic. 5% real stock return. All right. By the way, what's the percent? How much legacy do you leave? Well, this is the legacy that you leave with a, well, the, the top bars are with a 4% draw. It goes up from 830,000 per million to 1.13 per million. It also, for a 5% draw, almost doubles. You leave more money. Of course you would. You leave more money and you run out of money less often. That's having your cake and eat it too. And I, 
in that old-fashioned expression, right? That's what you want. 60-40's dead. We were the first to pronounce it now. I see it everywhere. We had it. Let me summarize over here. The stimulus provided by the Fed and government policy are going to spark a tremendous economy this year and further stock market gains in 2021. We believe, I believe, value stocks, those with high dividends and low price to earnings ratios are going to outperform. Now, by the way, I'm not calling for a crash of growth stocks. Now, it's not going to be like 2000, 2002, when the NASDAQ was down 80%. No, I just think they'll underperform. And not only because of the reopening of the economy, but also people are going to be searching for yields and yields are going to be rising. And dividend stocks are the only answer to that. You can't buy, you know, people say, well, you think bonds are going to go to 3%? Yeah, you can't buy that today. You buy your bond at 1.7 today, by the time it gets 3%, you're looking at 80 cents on the dollar. Fed will keep the short rates really low, but it lets inflation run well above the 2% target. Yeah. They're going to go and everyone can say, oh, my God, we're going to tighten. People are going to be having such a good time. Oh, we haven't gotten full employment yet. We're absorbing all these people who absorb a million a month. Um, yeah, everyone's going, to, everyone's going to enjoy it. I believe bond yields will rise substantially. Last year on CNBC, I called for the end of the 40-year bull market in bonds. We will never see interest rates as low on long-term bonds as we saw last summer when the 10-year treasury dipped below one-half of 1%. Yes, there's a lot of changes that are taking place. Look at technology, look at we're running this seminar, but. I believe a lot of those stocks priced it into the markets. Commercial real estate is, yeah, it could be four day, you know, one day at home, four days. Commercial real estate doesn't look good to me. Business travel, I think will be permanently down. I think leisure travel is gonna explode. Productivity is gonna rise because firms got rid of a lot of people they didn't need in the early stages of the pandemic. I know my university gave very generous severance packages to hundreds of workers. They're not gonna hire those back. Voluntary severance packages, by the way, which they took, not involuntary. There will be higher taxes. Oh yeah, you hear that again. What about Biden's tax proposal? I said last year, if the Dems take the Senate, which they did barely, that there would be a tax increase. It would not be the 28% to be 25. I just heard this morning, Manchin says, I'll go for 25. Yeah, I've been saying that for three months. 
We're going to have a 25% corporate tax. We can live with it. We're going to also increase marginal tax rates. We're not going to abolish all capital gains the way Biden does, but we will limit them a little bit more. Um, so yes, there will be a tax increase, but there's going to be a tremendous amount of stimulus. Pressure on the dollar as inflation grows, stimulus rises, sucking a lot of imports. I expect the dollar to go down. Keep your international allocation. Yes, I know it has been a disappointment. We believe emerging markets, which, by the way, are very reasonably priced and give good yields with our inflation scenario, will do well because they're commodity based. Many of them are. Don't give up an allocation there. I haven't finally beginning to respond again. Again, not as well as the US market, certainly since the pandemic began, but I think they're positioned well for the next 12 months. So in summary, last December, I said the worst asset class in 2021 was gonna be long-term treasuries. It has been the worst asset class so far this year. It'll continue to be. I said stocks are gonna do great and they will continue to be. I think value stocks, will be the outperformers in 2021, as they have been so far. I think the Fed is gonna let inflation run well above the target. So position yourself for higher inflation. Do not fear runaway inflation, but higher inflation than we've suffered for many decades. I think stocks are well positioned in that environment. Well, thank you very much. Those end my formal remarks. Um, I am very happy to take any questions you might have, Cameron and Johnny. Yes, uh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much uh, for that presentation. Um, extraordinarily helpful, and, and I think we have lots of questions. I'll go ahead and kick it off on the questions. So you talked about inflation running well higher in the four to five percent range, the Fed staying on hold, and that you think that long-term treasury bonds are going to underperform significantly. You know, where do you think yields go on long-term bonds? And maybe let's use the 10-year as a proxy. And at what yield level do you think that it becomes an impediment for equity valuations? Very, very good questions, Cameron. I, I think um, that uh, by year end, we will be well over two, two and maybe two and a half. I think eventually we reach, may reach three. I mean, if I if, if I think that we're going to have a price level 20 to 25 percent higher when this thing is all over in two or three years, you need about two percent per year on a 10 year to make up for that. Um, I mean, that's a ballpark way of thinking about it. Uh, people say, is that going to be a problem? You know, if inflation's run four and five percent, three percent interest shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> I mean, what what's important for spending and for real asset valuation, what's called real interest rates and interest rates after inflation. So, if inflation's running four or five, and the long bonds even three, you're still borrowing at negative rates. So, when I think if if they go to four or five. Yeah, then then they begin to be, and then the Fed is really going to have to move um, at that level. 
And then you get a little lift in the, then the stock market's going to shut. Yeah, the stock market's going to have a little shutterings as, as they stop the tapering and, you know, eventually start talking about maybe moving against it. And you'll see dips in the stock market. But then where are people going to go? The profits are going to be great. Remember, stocks are claims on real assets. Plant, equipment, copyrights, trademarks, intellectual property. All that will rise with the general price level. Bonds are claims on dollar bills. They cannot keep up with inflation. So do you think that the market, which right now is already starting to price in rate hikes by the end of 2022, do you think it's ahead of itself that in reality, the Fed saying we're not going to do anything until 2023 is actually more the reality, given the mind, you know, the mindset shift of average inflation targeting and not wanting to make the same mistakes as they did in 2014 and 2018? Yes, I, I think those dots that were released last month are absolutely ridiculous. I mean, that they're expecting so unbelievably strong growth. And by the way, they're way underestimating inflation, but, and, and then think that they can stay till 2023 at zero. They will be forced earlier. Now, I think they're gonna keep low. Okay, let, let, let me, let me, you what I think is is the long game here. A lot of people are saying, why is Powell being so complacent? Doesn't he know that this jump in the money supply is dangerous? I think he does know. But there's something else that one has to keep in mind. In less than a year, his term comes up. And Biden will be the one who will make the choice. I think he's angling for a reappointment. And that's why he's being relatively supportive of this. Well, in my opinion, too great stimulus that is being provided. Because if he starts making negative comments now, Biden will replace him with someone who won't act against inflation later on. And then we could be in more trouble. Now, some people say you're too deep, Jeremy, but other people say, I'm not sure about that. And I, I grant it, but I want to throw that out there. Mm-hmm. Um, if they, we, we do have a history of Republican uh, chairs being in Democratic administrations and vice versa. It's, it's one of the considered so important that we want the best person in there. Actually, Trump almost picked Yellen to continue. If you remember, she was very close. He, he finally you know, got persuaded uh, to go to Powell, but it was a close decision. Um, so uh, uh, it won't be unusual to have a Republican. And I want him there next year when we have to move against inflation. But uh, his term is up in February. 
And in your view that we're not going to see runaway inflation, um, that you're going to stay in this four to five percent, which in the long term or compared to the 70s is certainly moderate. But compared to the last decade, you know, is is well double, more than double of what we've experienced. So, you know, what are the differences uh, in the setup where you don't think that the degree of fiscal stimulus, the degree of monetary stimulus, supply chains being tight, uh, that you don't see even higher inflation than the four to five percent that you're calling for? I mean, I see very few ways that we could, you know, unless we have an immediate hike of interest rates, I mean, or 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 this year. Uh, once we start getting the data, I, I think this higher inflation data is is going to be coming in over the next three, four months, starting uh, as as the economy opens up and people bid away. You know, I mean, we know the supply chain is is tight. People are going to go out. Oh, yeah, I have to pay another, you know, five percent. Oh, yeah, you've raised the, the menu prices. Yeah, you've raised this and that. Yeah, but I got my 2000 stimulus check or my 10,000 PPP program or my this or my that. And, you know, and I have unbelievable savings. I didn't spend last year. I'm splurging this year. So they're going to pay it. They're going to pay it. Pricing power. Firms are going to have the ability to pass on. And I think wages are going to go up too. There can be a shortage of workers. Even though the unemployment rate might stay in 6 7%, you know, there's, there's not a lot. I mean, there's help wanted signs now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's kind of crazy. I mean, they're getting unemployment insurance. They're getting stimulus checks. They're, they're not taking just anything. They're waiting for their, you know, a real good thing to come along. It's interesting. One of the largest airlines yesterday had to announce that they're they're cutting a hundred flights this weekend because they didn't have people to 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 you know to run the flights. So it's coming but, back so uh, so quickly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, we began to notice it. My family, we had been to um, Naples, Florida, actually in February, and the whole family went to, we actually went to the Caribbean in March, early March. Um, We're going to go back down to somewhere else in Florida in uh, actually a week and a half. Uh, And uh, I said, I said, is first class available? No, all booked. I said, what about middle seats? They said, we're booking them. I mean, you, you really see what's happening and you're absolutely right. They didn't, it's coming back a lot faster uh, than they thought. Uh, they will get them in the air. Listen, there are aircraft up there. They just need to allocate it uh, <laughs> to, get them, to get them up there. And they listen, they do make the most money by flying them full, let's be honest. So they're gonna keep as much on the ground and, you know, I mean, why, why do two half fulls when they can do one whole full? Um, and, you know, so they're, they're going to do that. There is aircraft out there. But we also saw Southwest, what did it do? It ordered, a, I think, 100 new planes from Boeing, which surprised me. Uh, I mean, I, you know, um, but I, I, I tell you, a year of not going to Disney World, a year of not going to parks, the kids are saying, when are we going to go? You promised us last year. And yeah, and, and all the rest, you know, and, and the parents uh, are going to have the savings to do it. 
One of the things that contributed to higher inflation, of course, in the late 60s and early 70s was this wage price spiral. And you, you know, talked about, you know, you're expecting wages to go up. I've heard the, you know, it's supplemental unemployment benefits kind of categorized as essentially de facto increases in minimum wage because yeah. to compete with the higher unemployment benefits, they have to give greater incentive to work. Uh, so, you know, where do you think wage inflation goes? Because that was the missing piece, um, really, of the last you know two decades of 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 you know the inflation kind of construct. So, do you think yeah. we've now entered into a new regime in, in wage inflation? Yeah, I, I actually do think we do. And there's a couple of things. Also, remember the '70s were not just wages; it was also oil price shocks. Yeah. Um, remember, we relied on foreign oil, and thank God we don't anymore. Um, so. We're not in that, that, that was, if you want to talk about the real sources of the inflation of the late 60s and 70s, oil price embargoes, raising crude oil, and that sparked the wage price spiral. We don't have that today, but we have, you know, look at the minimum wage legislation. I mean, you know, something will go through Congress. Manchin says, I'll go for 12. You know, the interesting thing is that if we go to 15, we have 20% inflation, that makes it like 12. 20% off 15 is 12. Um, 20% off 12 is like, uh, you know, nine and a half. A lot of states are enacting it. I don't think it makes a difference. You know, I mean, a, a lot of firms say, I can't hire below the minimum wage. I can't hire below 15 now. Yeah. For full-time workers and benefits, I can't already. You know, not you know. I I still don't think it's a good idea the 15 because I do think a lot of people start out on part-time and teenagers and others, and um, it's good work experience. So I don't think it's good to be universal, but you know, uh, I think the demand of labor is going to be such that. You know what? Uh, you know uh, it. it we'll, we'll probably almost get to the minimum wage itself. Maybe shifting gears a little bit. You talked about value being um, an outperformer in 2021. We have seen multiple kind of head fakes in value outperforming growth, like back in 2016, uh, 2019. There was a sh- short period of time. Do you think that this value rally can continue and become something that could be a multi-year rally versus just this short, you know, uh, yeah, little burst? You're right, and you're absolutely right. We had have had head fakes again. Um, you saw it's the third relative extreme of valuation. So, 12 year forward on growth versus value is back to the peak where it was in '75, and the and the internet. Uh, actually, in the internet, they were far more overvalued than they are today. Um, um, so I'm not predicting a crash, as I as I mentioned in my presentation, like like we had back then. But I I, I believe that again, uh, the search for yield. Um, you know, I don't know whether the Biden administration is going to put restrictions on buybacks and alternative buybacks is to give dividends. If we would, you know, he talks about taxing dividends more, we need to tax them less. What we really need, and some countries have this, if you reinvest your money in the stock, 
you don't pay until you sell. And um, so you don't get have to pay on phantom income. So if you if you join an automatic reinvestment plan, you can defer the taxes. That would that would greatly increase dividends because right now people are buying. I mean, firms are buying back because you get deferred capital gains tax um, versus immediate income tax on dividends. It the uh, I mean, it's a big mistake to start taxing dividends. I mean, a lot of our uh, elderly and a lot of our senior people got to rely on them. They're gonna can't rely. There's nothing in the bank. There's nothing in CDs, and bonds are dangerous. What is Biden doing by penalizing the real one of the few sources of income that people have that are near retirement? That. That's a personal opinion. Personal so, opinion there. So, so we've gotten a couple of questions um, on uh, commodities, gold in particular. Uh, you know, clearly stocks um, look better uh, based on the chart here. But the questions are, um, with higher inflation, what is your expectation with respect to, to commodities and gold? And in particular, what's your view on a commodity super cycle? Yeah. Now, let, let me mention something about gold because uh, way back in uh, last year, uh, when, I, when I talked, I've never been a fan of gold because you can see gold underperforms. But for the first time, I recommended a very small slice of gold in people's portfolios. And for a while, it did extremely well. And, and then, to be very honest with you, Bitcoin, it sucked all the air out of gold. And... That's where millennials and young people want to put their money. And as a result, they, we've had a, a sell-off in gold. I, I think it's undervalued. I, I wouldn't give it up now. I think commodities will rise. But that's what, why I think gold has sunk over the last uh, three, four months. Mm -hmm. um, the, the next question we have is, um, um, so do you have any analysis on asset classes beginning with the Greenspan era to present? Um, the implication is, would, would this time frame give us uh, more of a snapshot of those classes, the return with the Fed, um, with Fed intervention? Well, I mean, don't forget Greenspan, you know, I mean, Greenspan took over after inflation started going down. It's in the 80s. Don't forget, Volcker was the one in 79, 80 that vanquished the double-digit inflation. So uh, you, we're going up in inflation. Go, Greenspan never presided over a period of going up over inflation. Um, so I, I think it's very, I think it's very, very different. Uh, also, I mean, we were coming down in long-term interest rates, which were still, I. Back in the 80s, near double-digit levels, certainly early 80s, way double. I mean, in 1981, I think tenure, it's 16%. It's almost hard to believe. Era. Just as I believe two or three years ago, people are going to be scratching their heads and said, who bought those bond, 10-year bonds in 2020 at a half a percent? Well, what were they thinking? <laughs> 
like Austria having its its hundred year bond at 0.88 percent yeah. that it offered a couple years ago. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, on, on, I mean, it's throughout the world. And of course, as we know, both Japan and Europe have negative nominal interest rates, which we don't have, and I don't believe we will ever have. But um, uh, yeah, so it's even worse there. It, that leads to a question about the dollar. You talked about an expectation that you think the dollar is going to weaken. You know, we've seen the dollar strengthen year to date because of the higher interest rates in the U.S. ostensibly drawing capital into uh, U.S. dollars. If we continue to see higher interest rates, if we continue to see U.S. growth be the area of exceptionalism in the world, you know, what drives that view for a weaker dollar? Uh, That's a very good question. Let, let me tell you, what, theoretically, what should drive a, a, a stronger dollar is interest rates after inflation, not just interest rates by themselves. Now, we've gotten some upticks in, in the tips interest rates, which is drawn in some money. Uh, I think there's a lot of knee-jerk reaction. Oh, the 10-year is up you know, that's good for the dollar and you get buy, dollar buying. The truth of the matter is, I wouldn't buy the dollar, you know, if interest rates are only going up because there's inflation. Because mm -hmm. one thing that we also know, I mean, you know, I teach macroeconomics is a long run, something called purchasing power parity, mm -hmm. which means that it, what, what, the, what the dollar buys ultimately determines the value. So you're gonna, you're gonna depreciate the dollar by its buying power by 20 or 30%. That's not gonna draw capital into the US. You've got to have interest, again, way and above. So interest rates go up, but unless they go up above what I think inflation is, it's not a time to go either into the dollar or into those long-term interest yeah, it's, the, it's a good point because it really is, it's not the nominal interest rate differentials, but it's the real interest rate differentials, those adjusted for inflation that will, will change capital flows and impact the dollar. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we received another question um, from email, which I think is, is right up your alley, um, and it's a really good one. So the question is, when can we get away from this uh, uh, framework of value versus growth investment? Uh, you know, one um, is a balance sheet metric, and the other one is an income statement metric. Um, he says that you know, companies can be both or neither. There's lots of overlap. And you know, there's other better metrics that capture growth and fundamentals, uh, you know, and, and there's weaknesses very much so in using things like book value. So what do you, you know, where do you think this evolves and goes in the future? And what do you think is a more preferable way in order to uh, compare companies in quite disparate industries? Now, Cameron, such an excellent question. Let me start out. Uh, when Fahm and French did their first research on this in the 80s, they used book value, mm -hmm. book to market. I never never like that metric. We at Wisdom Tree never use that metric. We much like either earnings yields or dividend yields. And by the way, over the last 10 years, earnings yields and dividend yields, although they've been challenged relative to S&P and the growth stocks, yes, but not as badly as the so-called book value, which I never liked and I think is even more outmoded today given you know, what we call book value, which is tangible assets and not intellectual property. 
So I agree with you 100%. We got to get away from that idea of book value. We got to move to earnings. We got to move to dividends. We got to move to tangible um, measures of, of, of cash flows. And, 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 and that's where we've gone at Wisdom Tree, and that's where we have to go into the future. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole value versus growth framework doesn't capture the fact of how much the economy has changed in, in incorporating technology yes. and, and intangible assets. Yeah, and, and that's why that, that it, 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 yeah, and that's one reason that's very, very important not to just use book value over there. Um, listen, I'm not, I'm, we're not saying growth stocks are not going to grow faster. Question is, is it in their price now? It's always the question. Not a question of what's going to grow faster. It's a question of how much is already in the price. I think it's already in that price now. Doesn't mean that certain ones selectively are not going to do great. I mean, a lot of biotech is going to do great. This whole MNRA is opening up a new world. All sorts of things uh, are happening. Um, but as a group, uh, a lot of them, I think, you know, got way ahead of themselves. And that is why I believe that the value stocks based on earnings, cash flows, and dividends will be the outperformers in 2021. It is quite interesting. You're paying 10, 10 more multiple turns for growth stocks uh, yeah. on 2021 earnings, and yet you're getting 10% less earnings growth on 2021 earnings. Even out to 2022, value stocks have higher expected earnings growth than growth stocks do. So it's interesting you know, how these disruptions in the economy um, over the pandemic time have actually led to value stocks growing faster than growth stocks. Now, now you've, you've said the reason why, and it is actually the reason why I think they'll continue for the next nine months. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned international. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left, but are there any particular international markets that look attractive to you right now? Do you, do you favor developed over emerging or the other way around? Um, it's hard to say. I, I think emerging are going to do well. They have the lowest PE ratio and the highest dividend yield of all major geographical classes today, and they're commodity linked. Um, uh, I like Japan. I, I think Japan is near a renaissance. Um, Europe is still challenged. They've really messed up on their vaccines after a better beginning. Um, but uh, uh, I, I, uh, I don't think, don't give up on your international allocation going forward. I can certainly understand you know, having most of the value in uh, your stocks in the US, but I do think that there'll be rewards on the international side. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible to see that we've been in what is nearly a 15 year downtrend in performance of international versus US domestic stocks. And it's a, question of what could be the major driver to cause that um, downtrend to go in the other direction? Well, the major driver, to, in, in my sense, is now the gap in valuation mm -hmm. uh, between the two. You don't have to grow faster, but if you even just grow as fast with a lower valuation, you will realize higher returns going forward. 
plus a weaker dollar plus higher higher inflation within the U.S. could all be you know contributors to to that rotation. Most certainly, most certainly. I just wanted to say thank you again, Professor Siegel, for participating with us. Uh, Wisdom Tree, um, the partnership is great. Uh, you know, there's a lot of alignment in the idea of the dividend strategy, so that's really kind of the origin uh, or how this started. So thank you again for you know, sharing your views, and we, we really appreciate it. It's been, uh, it's been wonderful, both you, Johnny, and Cameron. And Cameron, wow, fantastic questions. I hope I gave you thought-provoking answers. <laughs> very much so. Thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, you know, we look forward to continuing to, to follow your work. Well, well, we'll do this again later in the year, we hope. That would be wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you all for joining. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Field Points of View with Cameron Dawson and Johnny Gibson. If you enjoyed Field Points of View, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. It helps more people find the show. The preceding content is for informational purposes only and based on information available when created. It is not an offer or solicitation, nor is it tax or legal advice. It does not consider your financial circumstances, objectives or risk tolerance, and could be unsuitable for you. Fuelpoint Private encourages you to speak with an investment professional before making any investment decisions.